of Exodus. You've been worshiping with us for some time. You know we're in the middle of a sermon series uh, from the book of Exodus, so we've got a ways to go yet. We are in the 11th chapter this morning. If you're using the Bibles provided, you'll find a Bible in the seat in front of you. I think you will look to turn to page 62. You would find our scripture. And if you're visiting with us this morning or you're here and you do not have a Bible and you would like a Bible, feel free to take the one you find, the one that looks just kind of like this. And that would be our gift to you. We're happy for you to have it. Exodus chapter 11, reading the whole thing, only 10 verses. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. He went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Well, we have a somber and a serious text this morning, so you might expect a rather somber and serious message. We often look for and enjoy the humor in God's Word in this church. There's plenty of it. But today our text is about the death of the firstborn in Egypt, and there's just simply nothing humorous about that at all. In nine devastating plagues, God has asserted His power. As one author put it, if the ancient world were a three-story house, the earth, the waters beneath, and the heavens above, God brought destruction to each story and humiliated the deities that governed each. The Egyptian gods were ferreted out and removed from the house like a pest or an infestation from cellar to rafter. The Lord God Almighty, in visiting nine plagues so far on Egypt, has stretched out his arm of judgment and has re revealed his hand. Even Pharaoh's officials uh, have conceded that this is the finger of God. And they were aware that they were witnessing um, supernatural workings, power much greater than anything they or the magicians could ever muster. 
And still Pharaoh, though he was admittedly probably the most powerful man in the world at the time, and he reigned over the most powerful empire in that day, but still Pharaoh has not figured out yet that he is not God. We are in chapter 11 of Exodus this morning, which is a continuation from chapter 10. Chapter 10 ends, you might recall, with Pharaoh becoming angry and kicking Moses out. Sending Moses away from his presence. Verse 28 of chapter 10, Pharaoh speaking to Moses, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Pharaoh still believes that he holds the power of life and death in his little human hands. He's going to kill Moses if he ever sees him again. He's going to see that he's killed. And when he says that, he's assuming for himself a prerogative of who will live and who will die. And he's taking upon himself a prerogative that belongs only to God. And so another plague is necessary. This tenth plague that is announced in Exodus 11 is not a knee-jerk reaction on the part of God. It's not like God saw Pharaoh's angry outburst and, and, and reacted to that and said, oh yeah, well, take this, watch this. The tenth plague is really just part of God's sovereign plan. It always has been part of his plan. Over and again, the book of Exodus teaches us that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God directs the affairs of man and the world, right? God is sovereign. God saw this plague coming because he was the one who was going to make it happen. He even warned Pharaoh about it. If you look back in chapter 4, verses 22 and 23, we read of God giving this command to Moses. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me, right? That's the theme that we come again over and over again in Exodus. Let my people go so that they may serve me. Saved to serve, saved to worship, saved for God's glory. Let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let my son go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So God knew that it would come to this, and he actually intended for it to come to this. He says so that his wonders, his power, his might would be on display. God planned this tenth plague to leave no inkling of doubt in Pharaoh's mind that the Lord distinguishes between those who are his and those who are not. He planned this plague so people would know that he is the Lord, and implicit in that little lesson to learn that God is the Lord is that people would know that they are not. We kind of have to learn that time and again, don't we? You and I, maybe, if we're honest, that sometimes we usurp the throne of God. We try to be our own gods, and we have to be reminded occasionally that we are not God. There is one God, and it's not us. Chapter 12, verse 12, tells us also that the purpose of the plagues was to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt exposing them as frauds, exposing them as no gods at all, unable to provide, unable to protect, unable to save. In his commentary, it's called Exodus for You. Author Tim Chester writes this. He says, the nine plagues systematically undermine Egypt's pluralist claims. 
They are a lecture against religious pluralism, the belief that all religions are valid, and personal autonomy, the belief that I have the right to live how I like. It is a curriculum with 10 unforgettable lessons, and the message is clear. There is only one. Now that is not a message that we hear a lot in our day, is it? We do live in an age of religious pluralism. And we also live in a culture where religion is valued, it seems, more for its utility than its truth claims. So people can say, well, you can worship this one, and I'll worship that one, and she can worship this one, and it really doesn't matter, as long as you're happy. Or you can choose to worship, or maybe even not worship, if you don't want to, and that's okay, because if that's what makes you feel good, and that's what works for you, then that would be okay. Isn't that the culture we live in, a culture of relativism, a culture that has been abandoned the idea that there is one true God, but as Christians, in trying to be faithful to the Word, we're going to have to swim against this stream, we're going to have to stand up, we're going to have to go against this grain, and we need to proclaim what the Bible proclaims, there is only one one God. And beyond that, there is only one way to that God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Right? And those are the words of Jesus himself. So if you believe in Jesus, then you believe these words, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. In this 10th plague, God confronts and overpowers um, Two more Egyptian de deities. He, he has trounced all the Egyptian deities up to this point. He has two more in his sights. The first is named Osiris. Osiris would be the Egyptian god of the dead, the supposed ruler of the underworld. Interestingly, Osiris' name translates into mighty one or the one who has sovereign power. And I got to think that that irritates God a little bit. Because he's the mighty one, and there's only one mighty one, and nobody else has sovereign power. Everybody has a degree of power, but nobody has that sovereign power. That is reserved for God alone. So there's Osiris, and then there's Anubis, who's supposedly Osiris' assistant. And he's a god of embalming. And his job is to oversee the mummification uh, uh, process and guide people in their journey through the afterlife to a place where they will be judged. And he was characterized in Egyptian uh, art as a canine. And you probably have seen this, so you might not have known what you were looking at necessarily. But you see this guy that is decked out as, a, as an Egyptian with a dog's head. And that that's, uh, could be a replication of, uh, or characterization of Anubis. So it might actually be that God has Anubis in mind when he inspired Moses to make a comparison between the reactions of the Egyptians and the Israelites on the night that the killing of the firstborn would take place. Verses 6 and 7 of our text this morning say, There shall be a great cry. If you're reading in the NIV, it would say loud wailing throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl. King James Version, move his tongue. NIV says, bark. Not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So that's a little detail, right? And that's the kind of stuff that as we're reading the Word of God, we might go, well, that's cute. 
and uh, take note, or we may actually not even take note because we might just, I don't even know what that means. But I think it's kind of an important detail because it speaks again to this fact that all the plagues are miracles. By grace. We made it quite a ways, yeah. Eight, eight minutes in and she's out. All the plagues are miracles. They are not naturally occurring phenomenon, as some people want to kind of explain them away. Um, they, they can't be. They are divine interventions where God uh, steps in and he overrules his, his uh, created order, his creation, for the purpose of displaying his glory. On the night of the tenth plague, all of Egypt will be heard in collective mourning. Chapter 12, verse 30 said, there wasn't a house without someone dead. Imagine the grief. But in Goshen, in the land of God's children, no death, no noise. Which is itself a miracle. Because we're talking about 600,000 men plus women and children. So that puts the number probably well up over the million. They live in relative proximity to each other. You know, way more than 100 times the population of this little town, living together, all their animals. That's not a quiet scene. If you have ever been, how many of you have been to the Dominican Republic on these short-term mission trips that were blessed to go? You, Many of you. So those who've been there kind of understand if you've been to the city of La Romana or if you've been to Las Colinas or even if you've been able to go out, blessed to go out into some of the Bates or the Barrios, you know uh, what it's like out there. People kind of living on top of each other, almost, almost literally, very close. Um, and the chickens and the roosters and the kittens and the cats and the puppies and the dogs, they all kind of share space and just wander around, which is interesting if you're not used to that. But, but one thing that I found to be true there in the DR is that it's never quiet. Like, never and as somebody who enjoys a little quiet, sometimes tries to steal away to have some quiet, it's very noticeable that there's always noise going on. There's always some rooster sounding off somewhere. There's always somebody playing loud Caribbean music. There's always dogs barking. One of the things you notice when you go there is the number of dogs. We think of dogs, we think of pets. Most of those dogs are not pets. A lot of them are just strays, and they're on their own, and they're on their own out there living for themselves, trying to, trying, to, trying to survive. So if you drive through some of these cities in the DR in the morning, you'll see trash strewn all over the place. The reason is people put their trash out at night, but the dogs get into the bags and strew them all over the place. Those dogs don't have homes. Those dogs don't have owners that are worried about feeding them. Those people are often worried about feeding themselves. They can't be concerned about feeding the dog. So you've got all these dogs running around, competing for food, competing for territory. Let me tell you something. They're not quiet dogs. They bark and they growl and they fight, and you hear it all the time. You hear it all the time. I mean... You probably, some of you have dogs. And have you ever tried to get your dog to stop barking? Because if you raise your voice to get your dog to stop barking, I, he thinks you're encouraging him. You come out the door and swing it open and start, shut up! And the dog, it gets worse. You know, you're, you're one of me now. No! Stop. I mean, we can't even get our own dogs to, to be quiet. 
And, and here we are with all these strays. So all that just sets this scene here that, that it's a similar environment with all these animals around, but it's absolutely still. And it just doesn't happen. It only happens if God makes it happen, and God made it happen so that people would understand there's a distinction between those who are mine and those who are not. And the reality of, of that evening is that Egypt was wailing, and Israel was still. Now, one more digression, and then back to the story. Does the idea of wailing put you in mind of anything else you may have read in the Bible? Wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth is uh, something that we associate, obviously, with great grief, and something that the Bible associates with its description of hell. Hell is a place of eternal condemnation for those who do not have a faith relationship with God. And in Matthew's Gospel, in the 13th chapter, verses 40 and 42, Jesus here has been talking with his disciples, teaching his disciples. Um, most recently, he has shared with them the parable of the wheat and the tares. And at their request, they want it explained. They want it summarized. So Jesus says, as therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The Bible talks about a place called hell, and the Bible talks really about two places that a person can spend eternity. One is a place of everlasting punishment, and the other is a place of everlasting life. Most, I would hope, are looking to avoid the former and enjoy the latter. Don't want to be in a place of everlasting punishment. We want everlasting life, and there's a way that we know we can have that. It is, according to the Scripture, by placing our trust in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the sinless Son of God, who took upon himself our sin and carried it to the cross where he was killed, where he died for it, paying the price for our transgressions. Jesus did that for us so that we could avoid the place of eternal punishment and so that we could have the hope of eternal life. I think most people here who are honest would say, or agree with me, that we're all sinners, that we all sin. Or if I could put it this way, because sin is one of those words today that's sort of losing its meaning, that none of us is perfect. Will you go there with me? None of us is perfect. We, we, we do things we shouldn't do from time to time. We disappoint. We don't even meet our own standards from time to time. So, so when I say that, what I mean is we, we're all sinners. That's what the Bible calls us, sinners. And that the Bible teaches no one can atone for his own sin. You can't fix that on your own. The scripture says that no one can do enough good to counteract the sin that they are afflicted with. No one can do enough good deeds to earn their way to eternal life. It talks about one way there, and that is by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone. That's how to be saved forever. And those who do not have that faith are eternally condemned, and where they're going 
there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. God makes a distinction between those who are his and those who are not. He, he does that presently. He will do it at the end of the age. He will judge. It is appointed unto man to die once and then judgment, and his judgment will be perfect and his judgment will be righteous. Which brings us back to the 10th plague. It is by far the worst plague, the most heinous, severe of the plagues. And it really messes with our minds about the things that we think or believe or want to believe about God. Uh, it's a side of the Lord that we don't want to look at too closely. It's a part of our God that sometimes we actually want to deny. And a lot of people do because they can't comprehend this truth that God kills. We've, we've, we talk a lot about grace and mercy and God's saving, but there's another, there's another side to that coin. God also kills. We don't like to believe that, but yet in the text for this morning... Exodus 11, verses 4 and 5, Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. I will go out into the midst of Egypt. God's going to do this. And all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits upon his throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant that's behind the mill. There's no, dis no discriminating there. If you're not saved, if you're Egyptian, this is what's going to happen. And all the firstborn of the beasts. So we read that and have to ask, I mean, how can God do that? How can, how can he do something like this? And how could he be right to do something like this? And so I want to challenge you, beloved, to have your understanding shaped by what the Scripture teaches. And the first thing that the Scripture teaches in regards to this, I believe, is that God can do what he pleases with what is his that he can do whatever he pleases with what is his. And that's kind of a concept that's a little foreign to us, maybe, that, that everything is God's. But the scripture is pretty rife with allusions to God's ownership. In particular, we find it in the Psalm, Psalm 24, verse 1, and the earth is the Lord's, right? And the fullness thereof, or all it contains. Um, Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. This is God claiming ownership. Everything is mine. By creation and by preservation, everything belongs to the Lord. Now, we're Americans and we like to think that we have stuff. You know, this is my house. Okay, well, you're, right away, friend, your tax bill tells you something different. Okay? <laughs> If it was yours, you wouldn't be coughing that up every six months now, would you? These are just little examples of the reality that this stuff isn't ours, that it all belongs to the Lord. And that's what the Scripture teaches. And because everything belongs to Him, then He may do what He pleases with what is His. That would be His prerogative. That's His right, okay? Second, this punishment, which seems so harsh, and some would categorize as extreme, I would contend is actually a measured response. It is son for son. Son for son. Back to chapter 4. Israel is God's firstborn son. Back to chapter 1. The Egyptians are tossing the Hebrew baby boys into the Nile, drowning them and killing them as a means of population control. Now to chapter 11, centuries of slave labor 
under which untold numbers of Hebrews were surely killed and treated ruthlessly by the taskmasters is about to be atoned for. The Bible tells us that we will reap what we sow. I suppose you've heard that once or twice. You will reap what you sow. That God is not mocked. And you know, in the beginning of that Egyptian-Israelite relationship, there was probably a sense among the Egyptians that, I don't know if this is a good idea that we should treat these Hebrew people as slaves. And there was a time when they lived there in peace. But they got too numerous, remember, the beginning of our study of Exodus, and a new Pharaoh came along, and he got worried. And so he told them, no, you press them into slavery, and you start treating them back. There was probably a time where some of those Egyptians thought, I don't think this is a, a great idea. But over time, because it became normal, because it was sanctioned, they started to become comfortable with the idea that, I guess we're in charge and we can do what we want. And, you know, too bad. Good thing I wasn't born an Israelite. Right? The whole morality shifted a little bit. But they adopted the wrong mentality. And they weren't punished for that necessarily for almost 400 years. And one might conclude at year 100 or 200 that this is the way it's supposed to be. And everything's fine. But the Bible says you will reap what you sow. And the Bible says that God will not be mocked. So if you're out there today and you think you're getting away with something, you're doing something that you know the Lord says, no, you ought not to be doing that. But God is kind of quiet on the subject. He hasn't intruded and he hasn't let you know that you ought to think about it differently or go in a different. Do not assume that God's silence is God's approval. And do not think for a second that the eyes of the Lord are not on you. He won't be mocked. He forgives the repentant, no question. But he condemns the rebellious. And here in the 10th plague, he is acting justly. So even if the punishment wasn't son for son, which it was, but even if it wasn't, think about it this way as well. The tenth uh, plague, the death of the firstborn, reminds us of the truth that death is what everyone deserves. So again, as we read our Bible, it tells us that the wages of sin is death. And because we've already established here that we're all imperfect and we're all sinners, what it means is we all are, are deserving of death. And Egypt's sons were deserving of death. Some because of the, the sinful nature they inherited from Adam and others compounded by their own sinful acts toward God and toward the Israelite people. They bowed their knees to false gods. They defied the God of Israel. They sinned against God. They deserved death. There's no way that we could make a case that anybody in Egypt didn't deserve death. Since everyone sins and everyone does. See, what's remarkable here to me is not that God would um, impose his just sentence of death on the Egyptian firstborn, but what is remarkable to me is that he actually withholds this just sentence of death in mercy the vast, vast majority of the time. So, have you ever 
sinned in such a way that you knew immediately you have really crossed the line, wasn't, wasn't a doubt, and thinking if God were to incinerate me right now, he'd be absolutely correct. In other words, we say, well, if the lightning bolt came down, there are times in our lives when we are so far afield that we understand that if God were to just say, that's it, I can't take this anymore, enough of you, boom, we wouldn't be able to argue with him. We'd show up there in front of God and say, you made the right call. Right? The wages of sin is death. What's remarkable is that God doesn't just Throw that sentence out there again and again and again to everybody who's earned it. What's remarkable is that he withholds in mercy a just sentence to all of us because we have breath. The Bible says about God that he is, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why does God not just say, that's it, I can't take this anymore, enough of you? Because he wants us to be repentant. He wants us to turn. So repent means to turn. He wants us to turn away from our sinful life and turn toward Him and believe in Him and trust in Him and give ourselves to Him. That's how good He is. He would be right to do us all in. He chooses not to. I mean, this is the reason, the, the, the defense that Peter gives against the accusation that Jesus is slow in returning. And he says, no, the Lord is not slow in returning. But he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to reach repentance because here's the deal. When Jesus returns, and the scripture promises that he will, the cards that are laid are the cards played and the game is over. The time for deciding is past. When the trumpet sounds and the Lord descends, there'll be no more bargaining. There'll be no bartering. There'll be no changing of the mind. That is what's going to happen. God is so merciful to give us opportunities time and time again. That's what Peter is saying. Because as long as Jesus tarries, his hope is that his marvelous gospel will be preached to the multitudes, to the masses, and that many would be saved. So we look upon God in this 10th plague and we think, man, that's kind of mean. When in fact, if we look at God in the totality of his scripture, he is such a merciful God. He is such a merciful God. He does not deal with us according to our iniquities, as our iniquities deserve, the psalmist says. But he pardons and he forgives. He's willing to do that for you. He's willing to do it for me. He's merciful. Death is what everyone deserves. God's not wrong to expedite the sentence. In fact, in this case, it's necessary. Let's see the death of the firstborn and the tenth plague was the straw that broke the camel's back. We studied nine plagues in a short period of time last week. We're at the tenth plague. All the while, Pharaoh has resisted and said, no, you can't go. He's flat out lied and said, I'll let you go. And then he doesn't. Then he says, well, you can go, but you can't bring your women and children. Or you can go. All these conditions. Never had any intention of letting his labor force go. But then came this tenth plague. Now, I was blessed last April, as you know, to go out to Indianapolis to a conference with our ministry cohort, the guys that I'm working with and teaching, and we sat under some awesome teaching out there uh, for a few days. And two of modern America's uh, best scholars, as far as I'm concerned, biblical scholars, 
put on a, a little workshop. D.A. Carson and Ligon Duncan, if those names don't mean anything to you, I'd encourage you to read anything by, by them. D.A. Don Carson and Ligon Duncan. And these two really theological powerhouses stood in front of us and showed us how they deal with the text in order to prepare to preach it. And I tried to take notes. But these guys are like lightning. I mean, they are so smart and they are so fast. And one of the things that D.A. Carson keeps saying is just part of his teaching. If you ever listen to him online or whatnot, he'll be like, he'll explain something real quick. And then he'll be like, do you see? Do you see? And he's going to move on. And I'm sitting there going, no. <laughs> but I'm thankful it's recorded. I'm not as fast as you, D.A. But one of the things that I took away from there, I know I left a lot on the table, but one of the things that I took away was D.A. Carson's approach to Scripture is, is that when he gets to a passage and he's studying it, he starts to ask himself one of the questions is, what would be different if this wasn't in here? What would change if this were absent? How does this impact the whole of the narrative or the whole of the story? And by the way, use that when we come to the 10th plague. How, how would things be different? It was the 10th plague that was finally the severe calamity that encouraged and convinced Pharaoh to let the people go. And without it, there's no immediate exodus. There's no deliverance of God's people. So the 10th plague was necessary for God's people to be free. Now we said, what brings death on the Egyptians brings life to the children of God because they're about to be freed from centuries of slavery, centuries of mistreatment, forced labor, no rights, no life. God is about to deliver them. Now on their way out, he says, make sure everybody asks for some parting gifts. That's the message translation, a paraphrase. No, it's not. Eugene Peterson does better than that. But that's, he says, make sure they ask have every man and woman alike ask for articles of silver and gold. And you think, who in their right mind is going to give these Israelites their silver, their jewelry, their gold, their, their treasures? But the Bible says that's exactly what happened. In other words, I think God is showing off again. That God, when a man's ways please the Lord, he can make even his enemies to be at peace with him. That's what the Proverbs say. And that's exactly what's happening here. That God is showing off again. He's teaching them early on, and it's a lesson we'll see. They had to learn again and again, more than capable of meeting his people's needs. I mean, even if you just put yourself there for a second, you've never known freedom. You've never had to earn a living outside of making bricks. You just don't know what is on the other side. How much anxiety, how much worry. And it's as if God is going to say, hey, look, I'm sending you out, but I'm sending you out loaded. You're going to be all right. Here's proof. Because I'm God. That's a beautiful thing. He sent them out. They got their, they got their goodies, and they're ready to go. Now this plunder, we get deeper into the book, we're going to see that it, it actually is a double-edged sword. It's something that causes, uh, it, that benefits them, but by the time we get to the 32nd chapter, we can see it's also something that's going to cause them to slip and fall. But that's later. Right now we're in chapter 11, and we're exiting chapter 11. And there is coming a shore wailing in the land of Egypt like has never been before. 
ever will be again. The warnings of God have not been heeded. The promised judgment of God is about to fall. And it will take an extreme act to make an indelible point. But the lesson will be clear. There is only one God. And he will not share his glory with any other. I'd like us to take a few moments in lieu of a, of a concluding hymn this morning. I'd ask you to just, if you might, close your eyes, bow your heads. I want to walk you through just a few questions, a few thoughts as we let the Spirit move um, in our hearts through this Scripture. Because this Scripture can seem like just a, a neat old story. Something that happened then and there and has no bearing on here and now, and I don't see it that way. And I hope when I'm done, you don't see it that way either. So let me walk you through a few thoughts and questions. One of the themes that we see a lot in the book of Exodus is hardness of heart. Now, this is attributed to God when it comes to Pharaoh, but it's also attributed to Pharaoh himself. He's responsible for hardening his heart. There were times when Pharaoh just simply didn't want to do what God was telling him to do. He didn't want to pay attention to God. So I wonder this morning if there isn't something that the Lord is trying to tell you that you don't want to hear. If there isn't some message coming to you from the Father, and it's come in many varieties and shapes and sizes, but you're not open to it. And I just want to ask you to open your heart to it because He loves you. And He does what is best for you. So open your heart and open your mind. And please be willing to hear and act on what God is saying to you. And trust him. Don't be like Pharaoh. Another theme that comes across a lot in the book of Exodus is the absolute bankruptcy of false gods. And there's certain judgment, a decisive judgment. So I wonder, are there idols maybe in your life today? I don't mean things you set up on your mantle and literally bow down to, but I mean things that have taken God's place in your heart. Are there false gods in your life, things that you worship, things that have to be dethroned so that God can take his rightful place? And if there are, confess them and forsake them. Something Exodus teaches us is a certainty of judgment. Something the entire scripture teaches is the eternal destruction um, of those who are not of faith. And that God does indeed make a distinction between those who belong to him and those who do not. So the obvious implication here today, my friend, is are you very confident which side you are on? Are you very confident that you have chosen God and God has chosen you. And finally, God clearly will not share his glory with any other thing or person. So, is he receiving the glory 
from your life, this life that he's given to you to bring glory to him. You evaluate it, if you assess it, if you're honest, is, are you living your life for the Lord? Is it your goal and your aim to make much of him? To shine the light on him at every turn? See that he gets the glory for any good that you do. Are you living for the glory of God? Let me pray. Father, well, it's not just an old story, even if it is an interesting one. Because your truths are timeless. And they weave their way through history. And they come to us today from thousands of years ago, and they settle right in our hearts. You are who you've always been. And we are people. Lord, we love you and we need you. We praise you for who you are, your patience and your grace and your mercy to forgive and tarry with us, to, to, to put up with us at times. But we do want to be those who forsake our idols, those who are clearly planted in your camp, and those who make it a regular practice to see the glory is yours. We ask you to help us in these things, Lord. They're not natural, but they are our heart's desire, and you deserve it. We pray and ask in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. You will be back here probably within 10 minutes, if not before. Say goodbye.